This is a recording of the session on independent working class education and the legacy of the Plebs League at Ideas for Freedom 2019. You'll hear from Colin Wall from the Independent Working Class Education Network, plus his response to the discussion from the floor. Well, it's, it's a good thing that I've prepared a different talk from the one that I've given many times before then. <laughs> All right, well, would, you just, would you say something about what the Plebs League was? And the, I, sh I shall use the term Plebs League to refer also to the... I was talking about the independent working class education movement as if they were more or less the same thing for the, for the purposes of this. Um, but I will make a distinction in a bit. So um, in the, in the mid-1920s, at the height of its influence... The independent working class education movement comprised some of the following things. Networks of local evening weekend and weekend classes, basically teaching Marxism, which were known as labour colleges, especially in the North East, South Wales, Greater Manchester and much of Yorkshire. And um, from 1921, that, 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 those classes were absorbed into a thing called the National Council of Labour Colleges. And that... Um, that included those colleges plus the correspondence dimension of that work. And the total, um, at its peak, uh, there were 30, nearly 32,000 students. That was in 1926 to 27, were studying various things that we could reasonably call Marxism through that, that set of arrangements. Um, also in 1926, the National Council of Labour Colleges were running education scheme for 28 unions, including Asdor, the, the Amalgamated Engineering Union, the TNG, and National Union of Textile Workers, and the Agricultural Workers Union. Um, they had a network of paid organisers. The lecturers, the teachers or lecturers or what, tutors or whatever were not paid, but the, lecturer, the organisers were, and there were 12 national uh, paid organisers at that time. There was also the Residential Central Labour College, which was in Earls Court and also in Kew in London. There was the monthly Plebs magazine, which ran from 1908 to 1964. And there was a book and pamphlet publishing operation. And some of those books are quite well known, like the book uh, Noah Ablett's Easy Outlines of Economics is one, and another one is... Uh, Mark Starr's a worker looks at history. Okay, so so basically that was a quite a, it was quite a big thing, you see, and it was it, it was quite a powerful thing at, at that time, right? It was shut down. Some of the elements of that structure existed until 1964 when the TUC shut it down. Uh, right. So if if that's okay to start, I'll, I'll go and say something about how that movement originated. It, the pleb it originated with the Plebs League. It was founded by students at Ruskin College in 1908 in the lead up to the 19, no, 1909 so-called strike at Ruskin College. And um, just to say something, I, I, I know you probably know, but just just to, in case you're not aware of all of it, Ruskin College was a college in Oxford that was independent of the university. It was founded by three American socialists in 1899. By 1907, virtually all the students there were activists sponsored by the union branches, especially railway workers, Durham and South Wales miners, and textile and engineering workers from the northwest. Okay? Um, and uh, the strike 
All 54 students went on strike between the 26th, 26th of March and the 6th of April 1909. The strike was basically a boycott of, specific, of all the lectures except the ones given by the principal. They were striking in support of the principal, a man called Dennis Hurd, who we can talk about if you want to, who was sacked by the governors for fail, in quotes for failing to maintain discipline. We will come back to the details of that strike in a bit. Okay, so I'm going to say something now quickly then about the longer term historic, historical background to, that, to those events on the workers' side first. So uh, as far as I can discover, the self-organisation of workers for mutual education and as a part of ideological struggle goes back to the 1790s. It goes back at least as far as the, the corresponding societies that existed in the 1790s. Uh, which were they, part of their activity was kind of reading groups, reading books like, for example, books by Tom Paine. In the early 1800s, you had the Free and Easies, which were kind of somewhat riotous working class debating clubs organised by the followers of Thomas Spence. Um, and in the 1820s, there were struggles in the mechanics institutes, including there were, some of them were breakaways and some of them were struggles over the economics teaching. But like in Manchester, there was a breakaway. Uh, one which was set up basically by Owenites. If you want to go into the details of any of these, we can do it, but in, for the sake of not talking for too long, I've kind of rushed through it like that. Um, in the, in, in the 1830s, uh, as part of this, the movement which is called the War of the Unstamped, there, there was also, that was a struggle, you know, for an um, unstamped press, which, it, which was kind of workers' news left-wing workers' newspapers, and uh, one aspect of that was the emergence of what's called the Really Useful Knowledge Movement. And that movement was then carried from, by some of the same people like Fergus O'Connor and others, carried it into the Chartist movement, and it continued through the large the Chartist papers that existed right through the 1840s and into the 1850s. And there were, the point was that those papers, they were more than just papers, because of, because of the illiteracy and so forth. They used to be read aloud amongst circles of chartists all over the country, working class people, basically. And um, then there would be discussion, but they were also highly... Um, people were in tri in um, invited to contribute as well and send stuff in. Oh, I, I, I could start again. <laughs> sorry, sorry to be rude. Um, shall we give her... There's a, um, this is a, this is a, a script, the, the, the script, of, I've done the first page and a half of that. Right, okay. right, um, but I was going to say quickly then, the first English translation of the Communist Manifesto was published in one of those Chartist papers. This was a translation by Helen McFarlane and it was serialised by George Julian Harney in the Red Republican, which was a Chartist paper in 1850. Okay. Yeah, so moving on then, in, in the 1850s to the late 1870s, despite the sort of what might, a certain organisation might call a downturn, there were workers' discussion clubs. For example, in London, uh, there were 130 such clubs just in London alone. And these were um, eventually, um, it appears that Marxist ideas were spreading amongst those clubs. So the idea that Marxism was introduced to the workers' movement just by Henry Hindman, you know, it, it was already been introduced by people who knew Marx, like a person called Adam Weiler, it, through those clubs. Okay, so... Um, uh, so then the, the Democratic Federation was founded in, in 18... 
80 by Henry Heinemann, but it, he was trying to draw several of those clubs together into an organisation. And when it, in, it became the first Marxist party in this country, the SD, Social Democratic Federation in 1884. But the point, what the point about it is, all this, the, good, the best studies of that organisation show there was a working class base of self-educating and um, collectively and individually self-educating people existed in, in that organisation, you know, uh, right through. At every stage in it, right through the point, even as it was falling apart, you know, and when it became part of the British Socialist Party in 1911 and so forth, they were still there doing that. Um, it, obviously, we know about there was also in the in the early 1900s the Clarion movement had an education dimension, and you can read about that in the Ragged Trouser Philanthropists up to a point. Uh, and, and also in the early 1900s, there were two left-wing break, breakaways to the left from the SDF, one in the Socialist Labour Party in Scotland and one the Socialist Party, Socialist Party of Great Britain in London. And, um, but both of those were actually concretely associated with uh, um, working-class education in Marxism. Um, well, we can talk about the detail of that, but they definitely were, and especially the Socialist Labour Party in Scotland, a stonebreaker called William Nairn and a, a lab technician and engineer called um, George Yates, you know, had a very specific, highly participatory method of teaching Marxism to people who attended those classes, which, and it, the argument was that they could go away, and they were able to leave those classes and teach it to others in a way that other ways of teaching by lecturing didn't do. Um, so, kind of systematic mutual education in Marxism. And, okay, so moving on then, there was also, in, from 1905, after the religious revival in South Wales, a person who was involved in that called Noah Ablett formed a similar sort of group around himself, although it wasn't part of any political party. So um, Ablett was at Ruskin in 1907 to 1908, and he was really, if you want to pick out one person as a central person in the Plebs League, it would be him, but there were plenty of others as well. Are we okay with all that so far? Yep. Yeah, so moving on. The, was he what, a miner? He was a miner. Pardon? No, uh, was a miner. Uh, yes, he was a miner. He, he, he had an injury which caused him... He, he had aspirations at one stage to be a um, civil servant. He was trying to take civil service exams and so and he eventually became a Czech way person at Mardi Colliery. So that, that's how... He, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, so what was the historical background then? To the, we talk about the historical background to the Ruskin College strike on the ruling class side. So, from the 1790s onwards, in the same way that there was a thing, on, uh, there was an attempt by workers to do the things I've just described, there was ruling class interference in that from the beginning. In, there were three broad phases. The first phase was just outright repression. And then in the 1820s and through the 1840s, there was an attempt to, by the rising layer of in, industrial um, bourgeoisie to get working sections of working class people on their side against the landed aristocracy when they were trying to get a position within the ruling class. Okay, so that's referred to in the Communist Manifesto, or you can read about that. So, so that was the second phase, but the phase, phase we're mainly concerned about here really is the third phase. On, on, the more, there was a, in, on the 10th of April 1848 in London, there was meant to be a massive Chartist meeting, and the, the army and so forth were brought out by the Prime Minister, the Duke of Wellington, you know, with cannon and so forth to stop them crossing the bridges. But the whole thing was like kind of a damp squib. But on the evening of that meeting in the house in Bloomsbury, uh, um, the, Chris, the first Christian socialist group was formed. And they were thought that what their idea was to stop to try to stop Chartism reviving. It looked as if it was reviving. Now, you've got to consider that there were revolutions spreading across, spreading across Europe at that time, so that, that was what they were worried about. Um, 
It consisted mostly of high-ranking high lawyers and Anglican clergy. And um, just to jump to 1854, in 1854 a section of those people founded the, the London Working Men's College, which still exists, you know, quite close to where we're sitting now in Camden, although it wasn't, at that time it wasn't in Camden. Um, and the approach was to offer selected workers a chance to participate in a kind of pretend Oxford College run and controlled by people from real Oxford Colleges, Oxbridge Colleges. Um, the original Christian socialist group folded soon after that, but the, that strategy has continued, and arguably it's been the dominant strategy ever since, even possibly to this day. Uh, the Christian socialist tradition was particularly influential at Oxford University. So in the 1870s, when Oxford set up its, its uh, extension lecturing arrangement, by which lecturers were sent all across the country to address audiences of people who wouldn't otherwise be able to get to higher education. The Oxford Extension Delegacy was that body, and it was this Christian socialist approach was rooted amongst them. So, um, and also, without getting into too much detail, Toynbee Hall, that you probably know of now in London, was founded by one of those sort of people, Canon Samuel Barnett, in 1884, after um, Arnold Toynbee dropped dead after a unfortunate argument with working class people from Marxist people from clubs and he had a bit of a breakdown we could talk about that um, so anyway uh, I'm not making fun of that so anyway basically um, the I Barnett's idea was that Oxford graduates from Oxford would go and live in the East End and promote good causes there but one aspect of that was with the, he introduced what are called tutorial classes so the idea is that that is a group of workers commit themselves to a prolonged systematic study of for example of economics under an Oxbridge tutor okay yeah, yeah. right so so what, let's talk about the Christian I'll talk about the Christian socialist role in the lead up to the Ruskin strike specifically by the late 1880s it was clear that extent, the extension thing was not holding working class audiences and therefore it was not founding, forming a kind of compliant layer amongst the working class in the way that they were hoping that would do so at that stage then a second socialist um, Christian socialist group was set up by a man called Canon Charles Gore and uh, at the same time then uh, so we see the emergence of somebody called Albert Mansbridge, but I don't know if you... Albert Mansbridge was the founder of the Workers' Education Association. He was a clerk in the co-op. He was a student at and teacher at Toynbee Hall, and he was a protégé of Canon Charles Gore. Okay, so he, um, it was Mansbridge who put forward to the Oxford Extension Delegacy the idea that if they ran tutorial classes instead of one-off high-profile lectures, that would start to produce a compliant layer from amongst the working class who would then kind of act sensibly and keep the others in check. So uh, and even there was an Oxford University, there's a person from all that Christian socialist background who was in charge of the uh, edu education board he was the top civil servant in the education board in the whole country, Robert Morant, and he wrote it into the 1902 Education Act that such tutorial classes could be funded by the state. And uh, Mansbridge founded the Workers' Education Association along with the, in 1903, along with the Oxford, with the backing of the Oxford Extension Delegacy. And initially, it was just a lobby group. Are, are, we, all, are we okay with that? Yeah. So, okay, so just to say something about how, what happened was in the Ruskin strike of 1909 was like a kind of the climactic sort of interaction of those two traditions that I've just described. So um, 
so just say something about the lead up to that then. There was a rising tide of working class struggle in the period between 1900 and 1909 and therefore an increased need for, for adult education on the part, on the, in the views of the ruling class to, to um, create a compliant layer in the way that I've just described. So the Oxford delegacy was looking to create a national structure of tutorial classes to be run by the WEA on their behalf and that would lead to a diploma in economics at Oxford University itself for people who were selected from these local classes. Okay, so moving on to say that um, they began to move to take control of Ruskin College and uh, as a base for this. And it, this became still more urgent after 1907 when after years of lobbying, the TUC agreed to start um, kind of getting funding from appealing to other its constituent unions for funding to support Ruskin College. So in other words, the, the other side had to move quite quickly from that point, otherwise their chance would be gone of doing that. Um, the first WEA tutorial classes were run in Plate Longton in Staffordshire and in Rochdale from January 1908. And the takeover moves towards Ruskin then kind of intensified. So they began to lobby in the media. And they, of course, had access to all the kind of posh magazines, like the Westminster Gazette and whatever it's called, and similar magazines. And also they, they were able to put proposals in the House of Lords and so on. They, they were able to change the governing body of Ruskin College. They were able to impose a vice-chancellor against the existing principal, that's the one, Dennis Hurd, who'd been appointed by the original founders, and he was, who was a socialist. And uh, so students were banned from public speaking, but these, you talk about some of the most militant people in the country, to, to whom that was absolutely central to what they did. And uh, Hurd was banned from teaching sociology, which is the only place where sociology was taught in the whole of Oxford, including the university at that time. Exams were introduced to determine who could go into the second year of the course. So you can see that they were starting to get a grip on it. So meanwhile, the students were kicking up because a large part of the economics teaching at Ruskin College was done by Oxford University tutors who, who, who were anti-Marxist. And um, so the students formed the organisation called the Plebs League in the autumn of 1908. And I just, their, their aim was that, to bring about a definite and more satisfactory connection between Ruskin College and the labour movement. Okay, so they had the concept of, in, it was they who invented the concept of independent working class education. So I'm just going to quickly describe what that, what, how they understood that. There were three main content areas, Marxist economics, industrial history, that means world history without the, with the working class still in it rather than left out, and logic. Now what they mean by logic, is that they, they modelled themselves on uh, the philosophical ideas of the German leather worker, Josef Dietzgen, but I don't know if you... Well, um, he, he, was, he was known to Marx and Lenin and others. He, was a kind of, he arrived at a sort of system of dialectics, something like Hegelian dialectics. But, but his writings were published in the States uh, by his son, and they became quite influential on a lot of people, including kind of in, in, socialists with higher education, as it were, at that time. So... Um, uh, there was a very participatory teaching and learning method was used by the students based on the one that the Socialist Labour Party had in Scotland, I've mentioned. And um, there was a rejection of what they call mainstream adult uh, higher education, which they referred to as orthodox education. So the, if you want a model of what it was, it's something like what Bob Marley, in quoting Marcus Garvey, said, emancipate yourselves from all mental slavery, none but ourselves can free our minds. 
Anyway, we can go into detail of when Garvey said that if you want. Anyway, Heard, the Dennis Heard supported the students. And the situation culminated in a strike against his sacking, as I've mentioned. But the strikers were already running classes in South Wales. They, they were already, the local classes were running. And um, during the strike, then his sacking was confirmed. And that triggered their decision by them, by the most active strikers, to set up a separate system. So the independent working class education section um, movement and so forth started from that point. But we've got, we should not lose sight of the crucial role played by other people outside that, like Mary Bridges. Mary Bridges Adams played a central role. If it hadn't been for her, it probably might not have survived as a national movement. Are we okay? Mm -hmm. Right, moving on to quickly say, what was the political complexion of those Ruskin students in 1908 or 9? They were an extremely left-wing group. Uh, for example, it, it, two years later, they would be leading the camp. Some of them would be leading the Cambrian Combine strike, which, as you know, you know was like a semi-insurrectionary sort of a thing in South Wales. They, they wrote the they wrote the miners' next step with other people. For example, in 1912, and it's not an accident that South Wales and Durham coal fields were central in this because those were the two coal fields that produced coal for the world market, and so therefore. Uh, there was much more volatility in the prices and hence in the wages and therefore much more even more antagonistic labour con conditions in those coal fields than in the others, bad as the others were. Most students that were at Oxford, there were 54 students, all blokes, they were most of them were members of the Independent Labour Party, but I mean, the Independent Labour Party did have a working class base, a non it had a more left-wing base, and that became evident when the BSP was formed in 1911, and a section of them came into it. All right. Um, there was also a big, big influence, however, of the Socialist Labour Party, especially through the Durham miner George Harvey. Um, the Socialist Labour Party was an offshoot of the British, of the, of the, the British one was an offshoot of the American one, um, and uh, the American one was associated with a person called Daniel De Leon an academic, but also a, a kind of a serious socialist, but also very sectarian. The choice of the name Plebsley came from something that was written by him called Two Pages of Roman History. And obviously the plebs were, the plebeians were the, the lower class, the people not descended from the original aristocracy in, in ancient Rome. Okay. Um, right, so uh, basically now I've turned over two pages. Uh, that shows I'm trying to... Be a flash get in there. <laughs> other, um, there were other American influences which were quite important, and that was um, industrial unionism. Because although those people, they were most of them were members of the, what's called the British Advocates of Industrial Unionism, the the, the people at Ruskin College, and um, that industrial unionism obviously is partly based on what Eugene V. Debs. Um, initiated in the, amongst railway workers in the States. I mentioned Charles Kerr publications in the States, an extremely important thing. It, for example, they had access to a very, very good book about Marxism by somebody called Louis Boudin. Um, and also Dietzkan's works were also published by Kerr. And there was no other way to get these things. All right? Right, moving on. So what if... Um, I'm going to try and say something now about why we haven't, why the, Cleb, the independent working class education movement didn't survive or didn't or declined rather. First of all, those Ruskin students in 1909, there were works by Marx that they didn't have access to. 
that we know about, but which nobody had access to at that time at all. One was the German ideology, also the 1844 manuscripts. They didn't know about the critique of the Gotha programme. They then knew nothing about the Grundrisse, no, neither did Budin. I mean, nobody, however well clued up, because they were in boxes that had been in Marx's house, and then in Engels' house, and then in Germany, and in, eventually in, published in Russia much later. So they, you know, those things, that, that did have a restricting effect on their to a certain extent, I think, on their, what they could make of Marx's ideas. Secondly, I do think that they saw that revolution in Britain as imminent. I think they thought it was going to happen very soon. And there were th if you think about the things we know about, the, just as obviously, which they couldn't have anticipated, they had no idea that the Second International would collapse, or very little on the 2nd of August, of, well, no, sorry, the 4th of August, 1914. They had no idea about trench warfare, that they didn't know, they didn't know there would be a socialist revolution in Russia in um, in the autumn of 1917, and they, therefore they didn't really know. They had, could, how could they have known about the aftermath of that, including Stalinism? Um, they knew nothing about. There was no fascist. There was nothing. The, the fascism meant a left-wing movement that they knew. But you know, fascism in Italy was unknown to them. Fascism in Russia, in Germany, was unknown to them. And. Um, they had, another thing was they had no idea that the Labour Party would become an established mainline, mainstream party in the sense that we know about it. it, could, it there was no reason to think at that stage that it would necessarily do that. Therefore, they were not necessarily wrong in quotes about the idea, um, revolution being imminent, although we know that they were. And for, uh, Ablett's view about the Central Labour College was that it was bringing together union activists to form a kind of revolutionary nucleus. And that would make sense if they, if, in the light of what I've just said that they probably believed. But when the revolution didn't happen and so forth, it ran up against the problem that if you take people from their workplace and send them on a two-year course at a central labour college teaching them Marxism, then there will be a problem about what to do, what will happen with them after that, because they won't be able to return to that workplace. So in other words, in the terms that Gramsci might use, they did not have a strategy for a long-term war of position. I'm not, it's not condemning them, it just seems to be the fact. The third thing was... Um, <coughs> After the general strike, the funding for independent working class education was largely lost. The Central Labour College was closed in 1929, but I'll just talk about how it affected the National Council of Labour Colleges. Um, that was set up in 1921 to bring the local classes together. And a person called J.P.M. Miller became the General Secretary, and he was the General Secretary from 1921 to 1964. Um, so after 1926, he, he, he had very little... He was a bureaucratic person, but I've, I've, I mean, I've talked to people who knew him, and even people that were organisers with him, some of whom might still be alive. But he, um, he increasingly had to sustain the National Council of Labour College by making deals with union leaders by which the National Council of Labour College provided training courses for their members. Um, so, and there was also an increased emphasis on correspondence provision, and the correspondence operation was run by Christine Miller, his wife, you know, for the whole, the same, that whole period, very, very forcefully. So, although it remained nominally Marxist, and if you read its magazine in 1964, you'll see it's still talking about Marxism, but it became increasingly kind of hollowed out from within, kind of right wing. Is it 40 years? Pardon? Is it 40 years? Okay, yeah. Oh, you're okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yes, yes, they did. They, they, yeah. 40 years. It was moved from London to Scotland during the Second World War. But they were the Scottish people. Yes, yeah, so they, they did, yeah. Um, so, um, 
just to say something about the broader factors which arguably led to the loss of the legacy of independent working class education. First of all, I mean, I think we can generally accept that Stalinism discredited Marxism. That's one thing. Secondly, then, in, in 1968, there was the Donovan Report, and that was an attempt, you know, basically it turned in eventually under the Wilson government in the 70s, it became an attempt to weaken the power of shop stewards by a state-funded, skills-dominated union education set up, I, I would argue. And thirdly, then there was the deindustrialization of the economy, in quotes, deindustrialization of the UK economy in the 70s, in the 80s rather, and therefore the breakup of the blocks of organized industrial workers that would have been the natural constituency for that, that education initiative. And fourthly, one might argue that the ruling class has been very effective in using um, education, post-compulsory education, as a, an ideological weapon, whereas the working class seems, for whatever reason, to have let it slip from its grasp. Um, we could talk about that if you want. So just to say something quickly about the situation now. Hello. Um, there's a bit I'll give you the notes in a minute. Uh, um, Oh, okay. Well, right. The, right, the, um, now, the, the, one of the reasons why this is on the agenda now is because the, the, the World Transformed organisation, which is part of, uh, yeah, part of yeah, uh, we know what that is. All right, the World Transformed, you know, has got a, a, a project of having a popular political education, and, and to, it's, it's employing people now to be t workers doing that, organising that. And there's a whole lot of organisations bidding to become the kind of contractors to them for that. But the, another thing that is a factor now is the emergence of what I would refer to as an academic proletariat. So I now think there's a whole lot of people, especially women, but not only women, employed by universities on precarious contracts to teach and research, including things like labour history or economics or philosophy, which would be relevant to this. And those people have got a kind of objective... A section of those people, it's always a minority or a minority, would have a kind of an objective stake in involving themselves in such a movement if we could have it. So I think, in theory, independent working class education may be back on the agenda. Um, I think the earlier socialists, like the ones we... Huh. Oh, you're right. Uh, the, the earlier socialists, like the ones that we um, have talked about, would not believe how the, how the working class movement has allowed the instruments of ideological struggle to slip from our grasp. And I don't think it's a marginal issue. First of all, it's arguable that the whole working class movement is restrained by undervaluing that. Secondly, uh, arguable also that um, it, it, it's no good if it's not argue, ideological struggle is no good if it's not integrated and given with and given equal weight with economic and political struggle. And because if not, the, if it isn't, the outcome is what we've got: is clientelist, careerist-dominated electoral politics bureaucrat-dominated unions and media owners, think tanks and professors dominating the production and distribution of ideas. So thirdly, therefore, is I think it's arguable also that education properly so-called, that's say independent working class education in a valid form, is the key to taking back the initiative in the field of ideological struggle. And therefore, I think that what the Ruskin students did represent strikers is not just a little incident in the past that it can be forgotten. I think it represents a large section of the worthwhile future and that we urgently need to catch up with them if we can. And so, you know, the question to pose really, I suppose, hopefully, is what, how best to build a valid educational dimension of the workers' movement now. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you.
We run Ideas for Freedom every year. For more talks and discussions, come and join our now legendary annual socialist summer getaway at Buckhampton Bridge in West Yorkshire on the 8th to the 11th of August. This will be a long weekend of music, campfires, food, drink and socialist discussions, workshops, tree climbing and messing about in the great outdoors. Open to all. More information and tickets from £20, including food, at workersliberty.org forward slash camp.